So a quick word before we move on to our sermon today. Um, You probably remember the chronology of Acts was thrown off by me on purpose for Easter, for Palm Sunday and Easter. I wanted to skip ahead a little bit to um, Paul and Silas, uh, Luke and Timothy, and their work in Philippi, the city of Philippi. And so that's Lydia, that's the demon-possessed girl, that's the jailer. All of them encountered the gospel in some way through the, the Holy Spirit working through Paul and, and Silas. Um, that's, that's, I skipped ahead to that. So I left two, out three stories out in between the Jerusalem Council, where they decided what Gentile believers must do to become believers, which is not much, actually. Between that and Philippi, that we looked at the last couple of weeks, there's three stories. And Rico actually, miraculously, covered one of those last, totally obscure story from the middle of nowhere in Acts and he touched on it which was crazy and and he talked about having your life interrupted in a sacred way and that's what happened to Paul he had intended on the second missions trip which we're looking at today to go um, around Asia Minor and God said no not going to do that you're going to go north to Macedonia uh, of which Philippi is one of the chief cities in and so that's what he did. God showed up, interrupted everything, and up he went. He changed his plans. Um, so that's in chapter 16, the beginning of chapter 16. Today, we are backing up even further from that to chapter 15 again. So our story today comes right after the Jerusalem Council. It's the first thing that happens, and it's um, Paul and Barnabas deciding to, to retrace their steps from their first missions trip through Asia Minor and to strengthen and encourage those churches. And we'll see what happens there. So that's what we're... I just wanted to let you know that the chronology is all out of whack, that we're, we're backtracking a bit from where we had been because we had skipped over it. Without a doubt, the slogan that I most frequently repeat to my kindergartners and often my daughters is the following. It's okay to make a mistake just as long as you fix it. I say that to my kindergartners at least once every morning during a little... During a little Literacy morning message time. Um, some kid will say the wrong answer and say, "Hey, it's okay to make a mistake as long as we fix it." So, what do you think it is? Think what what could the answer really be? What what do you think? Um, I say it so often that I don't even finish the statement. Sometimes I let them finish it for me. So, I'll say, "Kindergarten, is it okay to make mistakes?" And they all shout, "Yes!" And I'll say, "But we need to make sure we." And they all say, "Fix it." But every once in a while, I'll catch one of the kids off guard and I'll say, "Is it okay to make a mistake?" And all the kids will say, "Yes." And one kid will say, "No." Oh. And all the all their peers will turn to them, like, and they'll catch themselves and be really embarrassed. Um, they'll sheepishly mumble. I mean, yeah, it, it's okay to make a mistake, Mr. Lance. And it's ironic because they've made a mistake about the principle of being acceptable to make a mistake. They made a mistake about whether or not it's okay to make a mistake. Is it oxymoronic to say that the worst mistake you can make is to make no mistakes? Ah, anyway. But there's a very specific reason why we reinforce that with the kids, the importance of making mistakes, that it's okay to make mistakes. Why would that be? Why would we teach five-year-olds it's okay to make a mistake? Because it's going to happen. It's the only way you're going to learn. Trish and Paul, those are great answers. Um, It's it's because taking risks in your thinking is one of the very best ways to learn. I'm addicted to this geography challenge game on my phone. It's, It's so nerdy. It's all just geography facts. It's so geeky. But I'm I'm addicted to it. And I always want to, and I now know what the capital of Burkina Faso in Africa is because I've played this game so much, and I got it wrong a whole bunch of times. It's Ouagadougou, in case you're wondering. 
something I don't really know how to pronounce it. I just know what it looks like on my phone. Um, I know that because I got it wrong a bunch of times, but I got I saw it enough times that now I got it right. Now I know. I, I think that's what it is. I should probably have checked before. But taking risks in your thinking is the best one of the best ways to learn. And children won't take risks in a learning environment where if they make a mistake, they're shamed or embarrassed or laughed at or belittled. That doesn't mean we reinforce wrong thinking so we don't say, hey, kindergarten, what shape is this tennis ball? And if they say square, you don't say, yeah, okay, whatever, sure. That reinforces wrong thinking. So that's not what we're about either. It's just that that's where the modifying clause at the end of the saying comes into play, where you just need to make sure that you fix your mistakes. It's okay to make a mistake as long as you fix it. The goal isn't to make errors. It's to see those errors as one aspect of the non-linear process of learning. The process of growth has to involve making mistakes, and you know this from your own life. It's a matter of recognizing that mistakes are the fertile crap from which a healthy crop of nutrient-rich wisdom can occur. That mistakes are fertile ground for learning. But here's the thing. That principle isn't just for 5-year-olds. It's for 50-year-olds and 85-year-olds as well. It's for anyone. As we get older, our mistakes get larger and are more damaging and they start to affect the people around us more severely and have a more dramatic effect on who we are and what our reputation is. Mistakes tend to get bigger as we get older. The mistakes of having an affair or getting addicted to alcohol or slapping your kids in anger or incurring tens of thousands of dollars in debt, those extreme examples of mistakes, which are really just choices, leave a slightly larger impact crater in our lives and our families and our communities than simply switching up B and D, like my kindergartners do. There's one scale of mistake that's very small, and there's a scale of mistake that's very big. But the principle is the same. You still need to fix it. Fixing our mistakes still leads to wisdom. There is still growth that can occur even in the most drastic of errors. The same God whose will is good for us in good times is the same God whose will is good for us in the midst of screwing up colossally. His will is still good, and it's still there. One of the truly great and I think truly underrated aspects about the writers of the historical books of the Bible is they refuse to lionize their heroes. That means put them on a pedestal and say, look how perfect our heroes are. The heroes of the Bible are not perfect by any stretch of the imagination. The greatest king in the history of Israel, David, what a screw up he was. Just a colossal failure over and over. But he's a hero. You think of Peter. Peter's entire life through the Gospels and into the book of Acts reads like the landscape of Utah. These beautiful spiraling peaks crashing down into terrifying plunges into cold, dark valleys of failure. Just He's all over the place, Peter. And for Peter or any Bible hero, the valleys, um, the valleys created by mistakes, more often than the peaks, are where love and learning are born. It's where we really grow. It's where they experienced grace. It's where they felt the embrace of forgiveness. It's where they exploded in their faith. It's where God showed up and made his divine will known in their failures and in their mistakes, just as much as in their victories and celebrations. It's where these heroes experience providence, which is kind of a Bible-y word. Um, it's also thanks to my geography game. I know it's the capital of Rhode Island, so there's that. Um, but these heroes experience providence, the protective care of a powerful and compassionate God. 
that he is there, he loves you, he's watching out for you, he's on your side. They learn that in the valleys, often more so than in the peaks. So mistakes are okay, we just need to fix them. Or as we'll see today in the life of Paul, hero of the book of Acts, mistakes are okay, we just need to see how God is actively fixing them for us, despite our failures. How he is fixing not just the situation, but how he is actually fixing us. Paul was not perfect. And in his imperfections, we find God's will for redemption and reconciliation. In Paul's mistakes, we will learn that God is at work even in our screw-ups, sometimes because of our screw-ups. We just need to make sure that we, like Paul, learn from those mistakes. We'll read the end of Acts 15, a passage that Rico had touched on briefly last week, and see how God is faithful in our failure. Um, Let's read that passage now. This is 15, starting at verse 36. Sometime later, Paul said to Barnabas, Hey, let's go back and visit the brothers in all the towns where we preach the word of the Lord and see how they're doing. Barnabas wanted to take John, also called Mark, with them. But Paul did not think it wise to take him because he had deserted them in Pamphylia and had not continued with them in the work. They had such a sharp disagreement that they parted company. Barnabas took Mark and sailed for Cyprus, but Paul chose Silas and left, commended by the brothers to the grace of the Lord. He went through Syria and Cilicia, strengthening the churches. Pause there. So this is the beginning. This is, this is the, the jump-off point for Paul's Mission Trip 2.0. And it starts off very much like a mirror image of Mission Trip 1.0, where Paul and Barnabas traveled through all your favorite Ilias in Asia Minor. So we got Pamphylia, Pisidia, Galatia, and Cilicia. There they are. They're all in there somewhere in that circle of places they visited. I considered added, adding Penicillia just to see if you were listening. It's not a real place. Just to see if you're awake. Um, the initial intention was for them to revisit each of these places, each of these cities and these regions that they had visited before, and bring encouragement and strengthening to the churches because they are very baby churches. They would have left leadership behind when, when they left those places, but they needed to check up on them, make sure they were doing okay. As well, the other purpose of the trip was to deliver the letter from the Jerusalem Council um, saying, hey, you don't need to be circumcised anymore to be a believer. That's great. So there are two amazing things about this intended missions trip 2.0. Number one, in most of those cities, Paul and Barnabas had been run out of town or worse. In Pisidia and Antioch, they may have been beaten and ostracized. In Iconium, they learned of a plot to stone them to death, so they fled. And in Lystra, Paul was stoned so much that they thought he was dead. They threw him in a ditch somewhere, thought he had died. That's how bad the public stoning had been. And now, they want to return to those cities? If the last time you went to Calgary, you had a bunch of cowboys and oil executives gang up on you and throw spurs at you and throw raw bitumen at you, you wouldn't be so eager to head down to the Stampede in July, would you? You would think twice about that. Well, it takes tremendous courage and trust in the providence of God to even consider putting yourselves through something like that again. They know that if they go to those cities, there's people there who still hate them and still want to do harm to them. But they're willing to risk it. They're willing to go back to those cities and strengthen them and and do what they can to make sure they flourish. It takes a lot of courage. They knew it was God's will for those baby churches that they had planted to grow into fully-fledged, healthy communities of believers. So they were willing to head back into the lion's den that was Asia Minor. That's the first amazing thing about this planned missions trip 2.0. 
But here is, number two, the second amazing thing about that planned missions trip. It was dead before it ever left the drafting table. They had these plans, as Rico said last week, plans get interrupted. These plans got interrupted immediately, and then they got interrupted again later on, um, which is what Rico talked about. God intervened and sent them to Macedonia, where they broke new ground for the gospel in what is now today called Europe for the first time in the city of Philippi. That was the plan never got very far. It died pretty quick. They went north to uncharted territory rather than west or south to familiar lands. And they did it because God plainly made his will known to them and changed their plans for them. So even though they planned one thing, the end result looked vastly different. The original plan died pretty quickly at God's direction, and it's a good thing that it did. Because heading to Philippi was an excellent choice. It was rich, fertile ground for breaking. God sent them there. But the plan wasn't just altered drastically in its destination, it was also altered drastically in its personnel. That's where the immediate change to the plans came. That's where it really died immediately. That's the real reason it never left the drafting table, because the architects of the plan ended up fighting over the most foundational element. Who would even go on the trip? They immediately couldn't come to terms with who was going to go on the trip. Barnabas wants to take his cousin John Mark, but here's what Paul thinks. There's an old saying in Tennessee, I know it's in Texas, probably in Tennessee, that says, fool me once, shame on, shame on you. If fool me, we can't get fooled again. Oh, that's one of my favorite clips of all time. Fool me once, shame on. You can't fool me. <laughs> it's my favorite. But that's what Paul's thinking. The point is Paul's thinking, I'm not going to get fooled again. Fool me once, shame on you, I think is how it goes. Fool me twice, shame on me. Um, George W., that's how it goes for next time. Way back in Acts 13.13, just as Paul, Barnabas, and Mark touched down on the mainland in Pamphylia to bring the gospel to the Roman colony, actually it was Perga that they landed in, just as they landed in the Roman colonies, what we call Turkey today, that's when Mark took off. They hadn't even gotten off the boat yet. And Mark says, no, I'm out of here. I'm not doing this. We don't know why. Uh, There's no reason given. And Luke inserts no criticism. Luke doesn't say at the time in Acts 13 that it was bad for Mark to flee. He just says that he took off. Um, There's no response from Paul at the time. We have to wait till two chapters later in Acts 15 to see the ramifications of Mark taking off like that. Fast forward a few years and a few chapters to Acts 15. Um, not to mention a few attempted public executions that he skipped out on. And we see that Paul is now labeling this young man a deserter, a fleer. And if you know anything about military, to be a deserter is like treason. They will shoot you for being a deserter. It's a title loaded with shame and rejection. If John Mark couldn't even stick it out before the job got challenging, why invite him now when persecution is to be expected? What's to say he wouldn't desert them again, this time while they're chained up in prison and need someone to help them? And here's Mark, whose reputation is as a deserter. He's going to take off again and and leave us high and dry. We can understand Paul's perspective. Mark had made a mistake, and it had been a costly mistake. And the consequences of that mistake are that Paul refuses to trust him with the sacred act of strengthening and encouraging the churches anymore. He's out. You had your chance. You failed. I'm not giving you a second chance. Fool me once. Well, you're not going to fool me again. Perhaps we can see wisdom there. Mark had abandoned them, meaning that he had abandoned God's will. 
When the mistake is that significant, why offer the opportunity to fix it? That is a big, big mistake. Paul recognizes it it as such. Interestingly, in this battle between um, Paul and, and Barnabas over John Mark, interestingly, Luke refuses to take sides. He does not present either side as being the right side. Even though Paul is clearly the hero of his historical account, everything before Paul leads up to Paul being the, the apostle to the Gentiles, and everything after Paul is all Paul. It's all Paul from chapter, basically chapter 10 onwards. He's the hero, but Luke refuses to take his side. I, I think that's a little bit telling to me. Despite Luke, uh, Paul being Luke's focal point and protagonist, if you will, here Luke is neutral. We get no indication that Paul is right to refuse Mark, and we get no indication that Barnabas is right to advocate for his deserter of a cousin. When the disagreement becomes so sharp that Paul and Barnabas split up, Luke refuses to assign blame on either of them. It's, he doesn't say it's Paul's fault. He doesn't say it's Barnabas's fault. It's just what happened. People make mistakes. Leaders are not perfect. But why doesn't he assign blame? Why does he go out of his way to be as neutral as possible? Why would Luke record a disagreement of this magnitude, an ugly blemish on the beautiful face of the early church? Why go out of his way to emphasize the egocentric argument of two titanic figures in the church? Why would he make them look bad and then just kind of walk away from the story? Just leave it as it is. Say, hey, they had this argument. Those guys and their their egos got in the way. Why would he mention it and then leave it? Why highlight this particular mistake? Because, as with any mistake, class, kindergarten class, it's our job to fix it. You make a mistake, that's okay as long as you fix it. Or at least allow God to fix it. And God, in the passage, will do exactly that. He will take this foolish act of disunity, committed right in the central heart of a book that highlights the holy importance of unity. Whenever Luke records something good, he always wraps it up by saying, and the church grew, and they, every believer was tied together, and they ate meals together. To Luke, the sign of a healthy church is unity. And right here in the middle of the book, he highlights disunity, foolishness on the acts of leaders. Well, that's because God will redeem it. He will take that disunity, which must have grieved him deeply. By him, I mean God himself. God takes that disunity and he shapes it into an act of providence. Think about it. Now there isn't just one super team of Paul, Barnabas, and friends. Now it's Paul and friends, and he has excellent friends. And there's Barnabas and friends, and he has excellent friends as well. There are two separate roadshows making their rounds throughout the empire, covering twice the ground and strengthening twice the number of baby churches. Um, So Paul McCartney and John Lennon split up the Beatles. They didn't stop making music. Instead, they doubled down on on making their kind of music. So so John wrote beautiful but jaded tunes like Imagine. Probably know this, Imagine All the People, which became as enormous of a pop culture artifact as any of his band's previous... It's just as monumental as any Beatles song. While Paul made sturdy and lovely songs like Band on the Run or Live and Let Die, either of which would have fit wonderfully on classic Beatles albums like Abbey Road or The White Album. I bring it up because the split didn't end their musical output. It simply caused two separate channels of musical output. Both good, but different. Well, the same is true of Paul and Barnabas. 
They go their separate ways. Paul goes up to Asia Minor to strengthen those churches. Barnabas and Mark go to Cyprus to strengthen those churches. And it's good. Out of this ugly disunity, God providentially does good. Paul takes Silas and heads off to the churches he had visited up north. Barnabas heads to his hometown in Cyprus, where they had had tremendous success in missions trip 1.0. God takes the mistake of the split and uses it for good, is what I'm trying to say. And Silas was a good choice for Paul. We don't know, I haven't talked much about Silas. Um, just prior to this passage in the Jerusalem Council, they decide on who's going to take the letter to Antioch to the Gentiles, and Silas is one of those chosen. So we learned a bit about him. Um, we know that he's a leader in the Jerusalem church, that he's a prophet who brought encouragement and strength to the Gentile church in Antioch. Like Paul, Silas was a Roman citizen, which had tremendous advantages, as we'll see later in Acts. You couldn't just be put to trial and put to death if you were a Roman citizen, which comes in handy when people want to put you to death. Um, this Silas is almost certainly the shortened version of the name Silvanus, kind of like my name is Christopher, you all call me Chris. Silas was probably, his full name is probably Silvanus. They all call him Silas. Um, and Silvanus is repeated, repeatedly mentioned throughout the New Testament. Paul mentions him in 2 Corinthians as a fellow servant. Um, Paul also mentions him at the beginning of 1 Thessalonians and 2 Thessalonians. And Peter mentions him at the end of 1 Peter as a co-author. So he wasn't just a partner. He actually helped write some of the New Testament as a scribe and probably um, put forward some ideas that made it into the letter. But over and above all this, Silas was a man who loved Jesus deeply and was fully on board as a supporter of the ministry to, to proclaim salvation to the Gentiles. So he's, he's a pretty important dude in, in the New Testament, this Silas guy. He and Paul would go on to accomplish great things in the Holy Spirit, just as Paul and Barnabas had once done together. Great things like what we studied around Easter time during their stay in Philippi. It was Silas who, with Paul, um, converted Lydia and her household, who helped free the demon-possessed girl, and who was thrown in jail and helped save the jailer and save the jailer's household and many of the prisoners. Probably. Silas was integral to all of that. So we've seen already how successful he is. If Paul and Barnabas had never split up, perhaps we never hear from Silas again, and that would have been a loss for the church at large. Silas would have stayed this background character. He's not a background character in the New Testament. He's an important figure. If Paul and Barnabas had never split, Silas never would have joined the picture, and he did great things. So again, God's providence, using bad things for good. And so, if that were the end of the story, where the ego-based mistake of two church leaders feuding over plans and personnel, if it had ended with just the split that God redeems and turns into the blessing of two ministry teams instead of one, if that's where the story ended, if that were the end of it, It'd be good, but it would still feel kind of empty and unresolved. If we just take this story and, and end it in Acts, it's incomplete. Certainly Luke has no interest in resolving the issue. Our author records no reconciliation of any kind between Paul, Barnabas, and Mark. He, this is where it ends for Luke. Luke leaves the story to sit in its ugliness as a lesson that God takes our, our dirty, selfish mistakes and makes something beautiful and good out of them. As we sang with, you make beautiful things. You make beautiful things out of the dust. You make beautiful things even out of us. God does that all the time. So Luke lets it stay ugly and unresolved. Thankfully, however, Luke doesn't get the last word in the ongoing saga of these feuding apostles. Paul and Barnabas had made a mistake by allowing personal opinions to erode the unity in the church of two leaders in the church. That's a mistake. That is not 
a worthy example for us to follow. We shouldn't be like Paul and Barnabas here, who split up over minor things like personnel. We should always try for compromise in matters of lesser importance. We should not be like Paul and Barnabas. They are not heroes in this instance. And Luke doesn't want us to see them as heroes in this instance. He wants us to see them as mistake makers. Does that make sense? But that was, there was an even bigger mistake than just the argument that was made here. Paul's mistake, his biggest mistake, he makes a few mistakes here. His biggest mistake isn't having a strong opinion. It's okay to have a strong opinion, as long as you're tactful and gracious. It isn't sparring with a brother. There's times where you have to come to disagreements. That's not the biggest mistake. It wasn't splitting the vision and the ministry. God used that for good. Paul's biggest mistake was, does anybody want to guess? What was his biggest mistake here? Not fixing it? Good idea. Especially because I've been saying you need to fix it. They didn't fix it. No, not disappointing God. Here's what I see his biggest mistake was. His biggest mistake was that he wrote off John Mark for good. John Mark had made one mistake years earlier, and Paul won't let it go. He completely dismisses John Mark altogether. Now, I've been on both sides of the coin when it comes to Paul and Mark. I've been the Mark. I've been criticized harshly for immature mistakes. I've, I've in my past, my freshman year of Bible college, I was seen by my superior for my faults rather than my abilities, largely, and that hurt. In fact, there were others in Bible college seen as better candidates to become a pastor. There, In my freshman year, Angie would eventually become my Youth Alive leader. But as the staff were planning the Youth Alive teams, they told Angie, she mentioned my name, and she was told, no, there's other candidates that are better for that. It, in a class of 20-some, they're saying that there's dozen, like at least a dozen people more qualified than me. And I wanted to go really bad. And the staff at first was like, mm, I don't know. It was strongly suggested to her that there would be a better fit as a representative for ABC than Chris Lance. More qualified for that kind of ministry. I was just, and it's my fault, I was just a goofball with no depth and very little discipline. Now, that sounds familiar today. Yes, that's fair. I'm still a goofball with little depth and discipline. But hey, I made that Youth Alive team, and I'm a pastor now, so take that. (laughs) And again, it's not that I blame them. From what they saw, I was more concerned with watching The Simpsons with my friends and flirting with every girl on campus than I was with praying or expressing my faith to others in an evangelical way. They had every right to see that in me, but it still hurt. So at this point, Dennis points out that I would be nothing without Angie. And he's right. Uh, I, I might call her up so you can say that to her. She needs to hear that. She, she knows, yeah. It, it was fair for them to have that preconceived notion of who I am, but it still hurt to be identified by my weaknesses and my mistakes rather than my strengths and abilities. I think I did a pretty good job on that Youth Alive team. It was a pretty great team. It was easy to do well on that team. Angie, Monica, um, Jordan Blasetti, who many of you know, and Laura, another friend of ours who's awesome, all led by Angie, who's the best. She's the best of us. So you need a chance, yes. But I've been on the other side of that equation. Before this becomes a big sob story for Chris Lance, I've been, I've been the Paul in this situation as well. Every summer I become like Paul, assessing young leaders on the Youth Alive team, and I've been guilty of being incredibly hard on them in my evaluations. 
I have mentally dismissed far too many Bible college students based on what? A three-day weekend trip to Clyde, where they are forced into interactions and events that they are uncomfortable with but are doing anyway, in a setting where they know they're being judged and evaluated, criticized, in some artificially brief approximation of what ministry is? I have magnified their mistakes unfairly. I have identified them by their weaknesses and have been slow to offer them grace despite their relative immaturity and uncomfortableness. I have been the mark. Far more often in the last decade, I have been the Paul. I have been the mistake maker and I have been the mistake magnifier. And both are pretty crappy. However, as we've already seen, that crap is fertile for growth and learning. Out of that mess, God uses that mess to accomplish his will and bring redemption. So, here's the end of the story of the saga of Paul and Barnabas and Mark. Paul and Barnabas would eventually be reconciled. This is 1 Corinthians 9.6. Is it only I and Barnabas who lack the right to not work for a living? Paul would only know that Barnabas isn't getting some kind of benefit for the ministry he's doing. He would only know that if he's, again, working with Barnabas. This was written well after the events in Acts 15. He would only know that if he was back together with Barnabas doing ministry. So they got back, they reconciled. So that's Paul and Barnabas. Mark had a moment of reconciliation. Being in the presence of a natural encourager like Barnabas must have done wonders for John Mark because his legacy today is far from being the fearful fleer in the Garden of Gethsemane. Remember in the Gospel of Mark, he mentions when Jesus is getting arrested, there's this naked boy that runs away. That's Mark. Almost certainly, that's Mark. He fled at the first sign of trouble. And then when they land in Perga, what does he do again? He flees again. He deserts them again. He's, he, that was his reputation, especially to Paul. He was this cowardly deserter. But being in the presence of Barnabas must have done wonders because he would, that's not what he's known as anymore. Now he's known as the author of the first gospel ever written, Mark. The Gospel of Mark, which was the foundation for the other two synoptic Gospels, Luke and Matthew. They based their writing largely on what Mark had written. So that's his legacy now. And that's a pretty great legacy to have. The first one to write down the life of Jesus. But even more than Paul being reconciled to Barnabas or Mark being reconciled to his own identity as a faithful servant of Jesus, there's one more even beautiful reconciliation to tie this whole story together. And that is the reconciliation between Paul and Mark themselves. That was the worst split here. That was the messiest mistake was, was Paul's dismissal of John Mark. And the whole messy mistake began with, with, with him declaring that Mark is incapable as a servant of Jesus Christ, that he'll never amount to anything, that all he is and forever will be is a deserter. That's where it began. Later in his life, however, Paul's view of the younger believer would go a total 180. Paul would not only learn to appreciate Mark, but eventually to rely on the younger man. As Paul's sitting in a Roman prison at the end of his life, nobody is with him. He's lonely. He's sad. Um, and he begs for Mark to come to him. Listen, you probably have read this because it's behind me right now, but do you hear the, the emotion in, in Paul's words here? This is written to Timothy, who was one of the only other men that was with Paul at the time. And he says, only Luke is with me. Here I am in prison. I've been this tremendous servant. I've worked so hard for God. 
I'm stuck in prison and nobody's here with me. Only Luke is with me. Yes, that's the same Luke who wrote Acts. So he says, get Mark and bring him with you, please, Timothy. He's writing Timothy. So he says, get Mark and bring him to me because Mark is helpful to me. He has been helpful to me in my ministry. At one of his moments of, of deepest weakness, as it, his race towards the finish line was nearing its end, cold, beaten, and alone as a Roman prisoner, there are only three friends that, long, that Paul longed to be with, Luke, Timothy, and yes, the same John Mark, who he had written off as a failure. Now, at the darkest moment of his life, he just wants, he wants to see Mark. He wants to be with his friend, Mark, who was a tremendous support to him in all those years since he had once written him off. The, one, the same Mark he had once so vehemently rejected so much so that it caused a split between Paul and his best friend Barnabas, his traveling ministry companion Barnabas. He dismissed Mark so sharply that it split Paul and Barnabas, this great ministry team. That same Mark is now pleading to be with. I love that story. I, it's the kind of story that makes me tremendously emotional. A rejected person is seen for their true worth and is honored appropriately. That's why, has anybody seen Lord of the Rings? My Favorite, favorite scene in Lord of the Rings. It's not, you shall not pass. That's great. Um, it's at the very end, well, near the very end of Return of the King, when all of the free peoples of Middle-earth are bowing down to Aragorn, the king, and he comes and he sees the three little hobbits, these three nobodies from the middle of nowhere. Um, four hobbits? Mary, Pippin, Frodo, Sam. Four hobbits. He, the king of all the free people sees these little hobbits, and he says, no, you don't bow to me. You bow to no one because they're the ones who did it. They're the ones who accomplished it. And then all the free people bow to these little hobbits, these, these humble little nobodies from the middle of nowhere. I love that scene. I cry every time I see it. Anybody who's ever, anybody ever see um, Harry Potter or read Harry Potter? The same two people. Thank you so much, Lisa and Yella, for being here. There's a character in Harry Potter who I love, and when he gets honor and recognition, it, it melts my heart, and that's Hagrid because Hagrid's this rough and tumble nobody. He's, he screws up all the time. He's not even a real wizard. But when he gets honored, it's the best. I just love it because he deserves that honor. He's a good man. And when, when that honor happens, I, I just I, it melts me. And Mark gets that honor. He, he is redeemed. He is reconciled. It's a, it's a story of God taking a series of mistakes and then creating goodness out of them. And you know, really, it's not Mark who's, who's redeemed and reconciled. It's Paul. It's Paul who should have known better. I'm almost done. Paul and Barnabas had made a mistake in allowing personal opinions to create ugly division in the church. But when you make a mistake, you just need to fix it. When Mark had made a mistake in deserting Paul and Barnabas in Pamphylia, it's okay to make a mistake, Mark, as long as you fix it. Paul had made a mistake in refusing forgiveness and being unable to see past another person's shortcomings, another believer's shortcomings. But Paul, when you make a mistake, you need to Fix it. To be honest, fixing mistakes of this kind, interpersonal mistakes, where relationships are harmed, fixing mistakes of this kind usually requires a humility and a grace only found in the power of the Holy Spirit. It is a miracle every time that happens. Paul's probably thinking the words of Jesus. The extent to which you forgive others is the extent to which you will be forgiven. And you have been forgiven so much. So why would you hold it against other other people. Forgive them. So the questions of the day are this. What mistakes 
have you made, like Paul or Mark, that you need the Holy Spirit to fix? Or who are you holding in contempt because of past mistakes they've made, like Paul did to Mark, creating a situation that only the Holy Spirit can fix and reconcile? What mistakes have you made that you need fixing? What mistakes are you holding against others that you need your heart fixed so you can forgive that person? We all make mistakes. We all, like kindergartners, mix up our P's and Q's, or worse. But he is faithful in our failures. That's how we learn. That's how we grow. That's how we see the beautiful providence of our Father fixing fragile, broken humans, whether that human is age 5 or 75. He's still in the market of fixing broken people, of taking mistakes and using them for good. Let's pray. God, we know that we are imperfect and broken. We know that you are perfect and and beautiful and loving and holy. And we know that we make mistakes that, that put up barriers between us and you. But, Father, we thank you so much that you shatter those barriers, that, that you don't see us for our mistakes, that you fill us with goodness and light. And so I pray that we would see the negative example of Paul and Barnabas and Mark here, and we would make it a positive example of reconciliation and redemption, that we would see how even as you forgive us of so much, we're called to forgive others, and we're called to recognize that we are forgiven that we are not marked by our mistakes, that we are holy people in your eyes now because of Jesus. So I, if there's any mistakes that we've made that we need to ask forgiveness for, I pray we would do that, that we would bring reconciliation. I pray we would stop holding other people's mistakes against each other, that we would, that we would double down and commit even deeper to unity as believers of you, as your people. Those are things that only can happen, Holy Spirit, miraculously. So we pray that you would do that miracle, that you would, that we would see your faithfulness despite our failures. We pray in Jesus' name, Amen. All right. Now you get to leave feeling a bunch of screw ups, but it's okay because you have the power to fix it. All right. Have a great week. Fool me once. Shame on, shame on you. You fool me, we can't get fooled again.